This morning I invite you to draw your sword, turn to James chapter 1 and stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Today I want to preach a sermon in your hearing by the Spirit's power that's simply entitled Overcoming Temptation. Overcoming Temptation. James chapter 1 verses 13 to 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. following his admonition to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and maturity. It is Pastor James who then turns to the topic of temptations. Is there a connection between trials and temptations? They are different in source and desired outcome. The source of a trial is God. The source of temptation is the devil. The desired outcome of a trial is to build up faith. The desired outcome of temptation is to tear down faith. It was Warren Wearsby who reminds us of at least one correlation between a trial and a temptation when he writes that it is possible for the trial on the outside of us to become a temptation on the inside of us For when we face a difficulty, we just might be nudged and pushed to question God, debate and complain about his love, resist his will. In those moments of difficulty, it is the devil that provides an opportunity for you to escape the difficulty in a very unholy way. Wearsby went on to write, it is that opportunity that the devil uses that we call temptation. Temptation is the opportunity to do a good thing in a bad way. For example, it is a good thing to desire to pass the science test. But cheating is a bad way to try to accomplish it. It is a good thing to eat and enjoy food. But stealing that food is a bad way to try to obtain it. I don't need a show of hands to prove that all of us face temptation. I also don't need a show of hands to realize that sometimes you overcome temptation and other times you are overpowered by temptation. So the question before us this morning is this, how can we overcome temptation on a consistent basis? Fortunately, the Bible is not silent on this topic. 
And James, the little brother of Jesus, gives us three valuable lessons. First, if you and I are going to overcome temptation, we must look ahead. If we're going to overcome temptation, we must look ahead. Please revisit with me verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 of our passage. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Perhaps the first foundational, fundamental, true statement that we learn about God is this. That God is holy. God is good. There is nothing evil or wicked or sinful about him. God cannot sin, nor can he tempt anybody to sin. So when you and I fall prey to sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We cannot blame God. We cannot say that God tempted me. We cannot even quote our first mother Eve in the Garden of Eden, who simply said, the devil made me do it. We can't blame anybody else. We cannot blame the devil. We can certainly not blame God. We are the ones to blame when we fall prey to sin. It is James who writes and says that that temptation is like evil desire that is dragged away and enticed. And when we fall prey to that temptation, it gives birth to sin and sins ultimate goal is your destruction. That the ultimate outcome of all sin is death. James begins by referencing evil desires. I need to stop right there and make mention that not all desire is an evil desire. God gives some desires, you and I may call them appetites, and they're given for our own good. The fact that We eat when we're hungry and we drink water when we're thirsty is a good desire that God has given to us. It's the body's mechanism simply reminding us that we need to nourish this body that God has given us. The desire or the appetite for sleep, it's not a bad thing either. Because when we are fatigued and when we are sleepy and we give ourselves over to rest simply because this body needs to rejuvenate. Nobody can function with no food. Nobody can function with no water. Nobody can function with no sleep. Sexual desire is also a gift from God. It is given in the confines of biblical marriage by God's design for the purposes of procreation and pleasure. But certainly, those desires that I've mentioned can be abused. People can abuse food one way or the other. One extreme is anorexia. The other extreme is gluttony. Certainly, the desire for sleep can be abused. If we give ourselves to excessive sleep, then it could create within us slothful laziness. And sexual desire can be abused. It can attempt to drive us outside of the boundaries of marriage by God's design so that we can just be satisfied 
and full of pleasure, but the end result is always destruction. Certainly, there are some desires, many desires that are given to us by God, but those desires can be abused. So more than a few people throughout church history have said, the answer is just denying your desires. Just deny them. Deny yourself of food. Deny yourself of drink. Deny yourself of sex. Just deny yourself of the appetites that God has given you. I stand before you this morning to say, I don't think the answer is denial. I think the answer is control. I think that the answer is for us to allow our desires to be controlled by the Spirit of God. When our desires are out of control, that's what James calls evil desires. Evil desires are desires that are out of control under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And James is very picturesque when he says that these evil desires drag us away and entice us. The word entice paints a glorious word picture. Behind the word entice is the image of a baited hook. I don't know the IQ of the average fish, but I do know this much. Most fish are smart enough not to nibble on an empty hook. That hook has to be baited. The purpose of the bait is to disguise the hook. The purpose of the bait is to try to trick that fish that there is no hook and there's no consequence of the hook. That's being enticed. That's a baited hook. The same purpose of temptation and sin. The reason that we are tempted, the reason we are enticed is to try to hide the hook of sin and the consequences of sin. I am not a hunter. I'm not a fisherman, but I do know this much, that success in hunting and fishing is all built upon your ability to disguise the prey. That success in fishing is, is in large measure determined on whether or not you can trick that fish into thinking that lure is real. Your success as a hunter is in your ability to trick that buck that that decoy doe that's lying there in the open meadow just ready for anybody is real. And once that fish or once that uh, deer realizes that what he is staring at is a facade, that's too late. Already entrapped, already ensnared, already caught between the crosshairs and about to be dropped. And before they know it, death is the result. It is James who says that the same thing that happens. Evil desires that drag us away, those evil desires are like baited hooks, all the while trying to disguise that that's sin and trying to disguise the consequences of sin. And before we realize that we have been taken, we are entrapped, ensnared, dead. James says that the outcome of all sin is your destruction. So a brother or sister in Christ would be wise to look ahead in order to overcome temptation. That if you want to overcome temptation, look ahead to the consequences of sin. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that temptation is both sudden and fierce. 
that when we sin, God becomes very unreal to us. It's not that the devil wants you to hate God. He just wants you to momentarily forget about God. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, it's been my observation that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows the fun, the excitement, the ecstasy, but never the consequences. Oh, the devil never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow you're going to have a hangover. And your addiction to the bottle is going to cost you everything that means so much to you. Because of your alcoholism, it's going to cost your family and your job, your possessions, your prestige, your wealth. Everything's going to go down the drain because of your addiction to alcohol. The devil never says anything like that. The devil never tells the thief, I wouldn't steal that if I were you. If you steal that, you just might get caught. If you get caught stealing that, it may land you behind bars. If you go to prison for being caught stealing that, then you're going to staple that to every job description you will ever submit. Oh, the devil never tells the adulterer, don't go to that hotel room. Because behind that door, while it's true, may be a few fleeting moments of fun and excitement. What you don't realize is that on the other side of that door is a broken home, an unwanted pregnancy, a sexually transmitted disease that you did not see coming, and shame and guilt that will dog you for all of your days. The devil never says anything like that. The devil just simply baits the hook. And once the dirty deed is done, whatever that dirty deed may be, the devil is nowhere to be found when the consequences come due. A couple years ago, I came across a helpful statement from Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is a contemporary preacher, and he said something that was very wise. He said, it's been uh, my observation that sin happens when desire and temptation and opportunity collide. Most people can handle one or two of those things happening at the same time. But when all three of them happen at the same time, you better watch out. Desire plus temptation plus opportunity. Let me try to illustrate what he's saying. It's the desire to have significance, to be looked up to, to be thought of highly. It's the temptation to slander somebody else in the hopes that that will make your reputation somehow better than that person. And the opportunity comes when the girls go out for an evening of just going to a dinner and a movie. Desire plus temptation plus opportunity equals sin. Let me give you another example. It's the desire for pleasure. It's the temptation of lust. It's the opportunity that you're by yourself, maybe at your house, seated in front of your computer or your phone, and nobody is around. And the baited hook is just a couple of clicks away. Desire plus temptation plus opportunity equals sin. Alistair Begg said you can handle two out of three pretty easily. You can handle desire and temptation if there's no opportunity to act on it. 
You can handle desire and opportunity if there's no temptation that presents itself. You can handle temptation and opportunity if there's no desire in your heart to do it. But when there's desire plus temptation plus opportunity, watch out. When those three things happen simultaneously, sin inevitably results. So here in our passage, James just tells the church, don't be deceived. The deceiver is the adversary, the devil, we call him. He is the one that deceives us, that tries to bait the hook so that we will be dragged away and enticed. And you and I have to know who our enemy is. We have to know how he tries to ensnare us, how he tries to act. The devil is crafty, but he's not creative. Our God is creative. Just look around creation. But the devil is not creative. He is crafty. He uses the same ploys to trick you and to trick me. He goes to the same bag of tricks. Why does he go to the same bag of tricks? Because they still work. Because they consistently work, he consistently places those temptations in front of us. When I think about the devil being that deceiver and he is the enemy that we fight, I'm reminded of, a, of the words of a very smart farmer in Owenton, Kentucky, who just simply said, you got to be smarter than the cow. Some of you realize that my first pastorate was in Owenton, Kentucky, a very small country church and country community. In that church was a big burly farmer named Red. We called him Red because he had red hair. Red loved the Lord and he loved his family. Now, Red and his wife, they had about four children. All of them were daughters. It didn't matter to Red whether you were a son or a daughter. If you're a child of Red, you're going to work on the farm. Now, some of those girls were pretty tough. In fact, uh, I was intimidated and scared by them. I, I never wanted to get an arm wrestling match with them because, I mean, they were tough. There were a couple of daughters that were uh, kind of drama queens, you know, a little bit, kind uh, kind of, of a little bit of a diva. And one day, Red came into my office to tell me a story about one of these daughters. He said, without fail, I'll tell her, go feed the cows. And moments later, I will hear her screaming at the top of her lungs. And I know exactly what happened. I'll go over there and discover that she climbed into the pen and that cow cornered her and she didn't know what to do. So she'll just start screaming, daddy, come help me, daddy, come and save me. And Red says, I go and I, and I fix the problem. And I tell her, baby, you've got to be smarter than the cow. You know what the cow wants. The cow wants the grain that's in the bucket that's in your hand. You've just got to be smarter than the cow. You know how the cow is going to operate. When he told me that story, and that's been probably almost 20 years ago, when he told me that story, I thought to myself, that is our battle with the adversary. We just got to be smarter than the devil. We know what he's going to try to do. He's going to try to kill, steal, and destroy. He's going to try to entice us to sin because the devil knows, because he's read the book, he knows that the end result of sin is destruction and death. So we just have to be smarter than the devil. One of the ways that you and I can be smarter than the devil is for us to understand what are our triggers. All people have triggers. 
I'll define a trigger in this way. A trigger is a set of circumstances that when the criteria is met, it sparks our disobedience. That's a trigger. I've been a pastor for nearly 20 years, and in my conversations with people, in my observation of people, in my reflection of my own life, there are numerous triggers. This morning, I'll just give you a trigger trilogy. I'll just give you the top three. There are a lot of them, but here are three that I hear over and over again. Fatigue, stress, boredom. And by the Spirit's power, you've got to discern what is my trigger. For some people, it's fatigue. When they get exhausted, they are susceptible to sin. They get exhausted and they reach for the bottle. They get exhausted and their lips are loosed and they say things that they ought not to say. They say things that later they regret simply because of their fatigue. They do things that later they have to apologize for. It can all be traced back to that trigger of total exhaustion and fatigue. Another trigger could be stress. When some people get stressed, um, they are susceptible to gluttony. You've met these people, right? Maybe you are one of these individuals. At the moment you're stressed, you start eating. I mean, you can't eat enough to satisfy and to lower the stress that's in your life. Still other people, it may be boredom. Listen, they're just bored with life and, and marriage and the job and, and school. And they're, they're just kind of bored. And I've talked to more than one man who has told me that when boredom strikes... Lust looms large. So maybe you're listening to this and you think to yourself that, yeah, that's one of the triggers that the devil uses against me. Fatigue or stress or boredom. There are other triggers, but those seem to be some of the prominent ones. You've got to be smarter than the cow. You've got to be smarter than the adversary. You've got to know yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses. And in your weak points and in your weak moments, when a certain criteria is set, you need to know that you just might be susceptible to an attack from the adversary. James, who's a pastor at heart, he simply says... If we're going to overcome temptation, we've got to look ahead to the consequences of sin. Second, if you and I are going to overcome temptation, we have to look around. Not just look ahead, but secondly, look around. Please revisit with me verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James tells us that our God is good, and this good God gives good gifts. He can't help it. God dotes over you with good gifts. The only thing that can come from a good God are good gifts. And I want to caution you just for a moment, because I don't want you to be in love with the gifts of God. I want you to be in love with the God of the gifts. I don't want you just to be enamored with the forgiveness of God. I want you to be enamored with the God of the forgiveness. I don't want you just to be eager to receive the blessings of God. I want you to be eager to receive the God of the blessing. And this God who is so good, he gives good gifts 
And not only does he give you good gifts, but he gives them to you in good ways. James says they come down from the father of lights. That word that's translated coming down is a present participle, which means it's a continuous ongoing action that God showers and peppers his people with good gifts continually. He doesn't stop. If you're a child of God, you continue to receive the blessings of God in your life, whether you're obedient or disobedient, God just can't help it. He just continues to shower his goodness upon you. I thought I might get an amen, but that's okay. You got a few more opportunities later on in the sermon, all right? But I thought that at some point you would understand, yes, God, who is so good, he cannot help but give good gifts. And the way he gives good gifts is that he continually, constantly showers us with good gifts. This good God who gives good gifts that are constantly coming down to us. James says you can trust him because he's not shifty or shady. He does not change. If you stop and think about it, he can't change. God cannot change. He can't change for the better. He's already perfect. He can't change for the worse because he's holy. So because of his holy perfection, there is no way that God can change. God is unchanging. He is unchangeable. He is consistently and constantly good and holy. This good, holy God continually showers down blessings upon you. James says, if you want to overcome temptation, just look around. Just look around at your life. Look around at what God has done in your life. And this good God who showers you with good gifts ought to be a motivation that you will not sin. About the only decent person in the Old Testament is a guy named Joseph. Joseph was sold to Midianite merchants by his jealous brothers. Eventually, he landed in the hands of a ruthless man named Potiphar. The reason I say Potiphar was ruthless was because He was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. The Bible does tell us that the Lord's favor rested upon Joseph. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. It didn't take Potiphar very long to think, I need to promote this individual. And so Joseph became the CEO of Potiphar's House Incorporated. And everything was going well. The business was booming. The crops were growing. The bottom line was swelling. The Bible also says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. He's the kind of guy in high school and college that, quite frankly, I hated. Why are you laughing so quickly? That's going to hurt my feelings, right? (laughs) But I'll get over it. Joseph was well-built and handsome. He caught the attention of Mrs. Potiphar. Day after day, she brought sexual harassment against him. She continually said, come to bed with me. And every day, he refused. One day, the voluptuous Mrs. Potiphar strolled around the corner of the house. She was scantily clad, leaving absolutely nothing to the imagination. She strolled up to Joseph, and once again she said, come to bed with me. On this day, Joseph engaged her in conversation. And Joseph said, with my master in charge, he's put me in charge of everything in his house. 
There is no one greater in this house than me. There's only one thing that's off limits to me, and it's you, because you are my master's wife. And then Joseph says this, how could I do such a wicked thing against my God? I want you to notice that he does not say, how could I do such a wicked thing against Potiphar? No, he elevated it. He said, how can I do such a wicked thing against my God? Even though Joseph was in captivity, even though he was in custody, even though Joseph, by some degree, was enslaved. He said, even in this despicable situation in Egypt, I am still being blessed by God. I still have the favor of the Lord. And Joseph looked around at his life and he said, God is so good. This good God gives good gifts to me and he gives them to me on a continual basis so how can I do a wicked thing in the sight of my God Joseph understood what once again Warren Wearsby writes when Wearsby says that God's gifts are always greater than Satan's bargains God's gifts are always greater than Satan's bargains if you and I are going to overcome temptation First and foremost, we look ahead to the consequences of sin. Secondly, we look around to the good gifts from a good God. But third, look within. Once again, I want you to revisit verse 18 with me. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Friend, if you are in Christ, I want to tell you this morning, You are chosen by God. God chose you. He selected you not just for his salvation, but also for his service. You were chosen to be on God's team. And God chose you long before you ever chose him. The scripture says that God chose you before the very foundation of the world. God chose you just as you had nothing to generate your physical birth. So you have nothing to generate your spiritual birth. It is God who initiated your salvation. It is God who accomplished your salvation. It is God that signed, sealed, and delivered your salvation. It is God who has saved you. And if you are saved, then you have the mighty mystery of the Bible residing inside of you. According to Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 the greatest mystery in the cosmos is that Christ is in us the hope of glory friend if you are in Christ then Christ is in you if you are in Christ then Christ is in you if you are in Christ then Christ is in you and you have been chosen by God to follow him faithfully it was the spirit of God through the working of the word of God, that did a miracle of God in your life. It is God who has saved you. Now James, in good pastoral fashion, he leaves the best for the last. It is good for us to acknowledge that if we're gonna overcome temptation, look ahead to the consequences of sin. And yes, it's beneficial to look around to the good gifts from a good God. But ultimately, the way we overcome temptation is to look within and we see the salvation that's given to us in Jesus Christ. So that James says that we are a kind of first fruit. That language of first fruit, it would not have 
gone unheard by the original audience. The original audience was primarily Jewish believers. And they knew that in the Old Testament, that it was customary for the people of God to bring the first fruit offering unto the Lord. The first fruit represented the best, the choicest, the highest gift that could be given. And James is saying that if you have Christ residing inside of you, you're the first fruit of all humanity. You're the choicest. You're the highest. You're the best of all humanity. Now that statement is not to create arrogance in you, but it's to create a sense of appreciation in you. This is what God has done in spite of me, in spite of my sin, in spite of my evil, in spite of my wickedness. The good God who gives good gifts has put good Jesus inside of me. And Jesus dwells in me. He is the hope of glory and the greatest mystery in all the world. Is Christ in us. The fact that the eternal Christ dwells in you, believer, in you, Christian, in you, brother, in you, sister. I mean, Jesus dwells in you. How are you going to overcome temptation? Look ahead to the consequences of sin. Look around to the good gifts from a good God. Look within, for Christ dwells in you. This past week, I came across a fitting illustration that can serve as a conclusion of this sermon today. The illustration goes something like this. Imagine with me that in my heart resides two men, the old Adam and the resurrected Christ. When temptation comes knocking on the door of my heart, I have to send somebody to answer the door. If I send the old Adam representing my old self, I will sin. If I send the resurrected Jesus to answer the door, Jesus always wins. The more I send Jesus to answer the door of my heart when temptation comes knocking, the more surrendered I am to him. So my friends, let me ask you, when temptation comes knocking on the door of your heart, who do you send to answer the door? Who you send determines greatly the outcome. If you send your old self, the old Adam, the old Eve, you will fall prey to that temptation. If you send Jesus to answer the door, you'll win. I realize that this sermon is mainly for the redeemed. But if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today I invite you. I invite you not just to be saved, but to be equipped for life in this world. And if you have never accepted Jesus, then the moment we start singing a song, then I invite you to come and take one of the ministers by the hand and say, Pastor, I, I have a sin problem and I need Jesus to come into my heart and answer the door every time temptation comes knocking. If you are the redeemed, I'm talking to you. If you're a believer in Christ, I'm asking you, when temptation knocks, who do you send to answer the door?
Maybe you need to come this morning and cast all of your failures upon the Lord. Maybe you just need to come and say, God, please help me to send Jesus instead of sending my old self. I'll leave you with this thought. That if the mystery of the cosmos has happened to you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, then I'll leave you with this statement. Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. How do you overcome temptation? (laughs) You look ahead. You look around. You look within. And when you look within, you realize greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. By your Spirit's power, I pray that the lost are saved. I pray that today, the scales fall off eyes and hearts. Help people to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. To those who are redeemed, to those who have accepted Jesus Christ, oh Lord, today I pray that you will bolster our faith so that we know that by your power we can overcome temptation oh father thank you for depositing Jesus in us in Jesus name we pray amen